Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and we are back here on the History and Technicolor, David Crowther and Wolf O'Neill uh, with another series of great film, historical film reviews, or at least we hope they're going to be great, you can never be sure. Now then, we're going to kick off with one of Wolf's proposed movies, which is called The Last Mohican. No it isn't, it's called The Last of the Mohicans, can't even get the title right. So I'm going to pass you across to Wolf, who's going to explain why and how. Thank you very much, David. Uh, nice to be back with you. Uh, it's a shame it's not in the shed, but uh, we'll uh, put up with that. Um, it is a shame, but look, we can see each other. And it only took us 40 minutes to get the technology to work. Uh, a record time. Which plan. I think is a bit of a record. Record time. Well done, us. Yay. Um, so, yeah, no, it's great to be back. And um, I thought I'd kick off with a film that I remember loving. Um, so it's the 1992 film, The Last of the Mohicans, directed by Michael Mann. Uh, which follows Daniel Day-Lewis's Hawkeye, an adopted son of the Mohican chief Chingachgook, uh, through his exploits and those of the conscripted locals in the 1757 French and Indian War, uh, which centres around the Battle of Fort William Henry. Why did he pick this film, Wolf? Um, thank you. Um, as I said, I remember absolutely loving it. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is maybe the greatest actor of all time. and Is that right? Seriously. Yeah, I really think that he's done two or three of the greatest performances ever. Uh, I just, he seems to exist on a pedestal far above everyone else when it comes to his craft. At least according better to me. Than, better than Peter O'Toole. Uh, yep, better than Peter O'Toole. 
<laughs> that was a joke, Peter, at all, of course, is a complete ham. OK, so what were, what were his two greatest roles ever? Well, my one of my favourite films of all time is There Will Be Blood, uh, of which he is remarkable. Then It is a good movie. I also think he's incredible in Phantom Thread. Uh, he's also brilliant in My Left Foot, My Beautiful Laundrette. Okay, that's enough. That you've that's more than two. Yep. Um, I don't know what your mass is like, but you know, uh, right. So he's good then. Yeah, he's good and excellent. And then the film is directed by Michael Mann, who's a great director. And this is kind of as he's beginning his the peak of his career. And then I guess the main reason is, and it's kind of worked out perfectly. In this lockdown, I've been using quite a lot of my time to explore indigenous history, especially in North America. So with that added interest, I've been able to learn a bit more and expand my understanding, which is helpful when it comes to looking at this film. Yeah, that sounds very handy indeed. I, I hope to sit at your feet and learn about Native American history. Uh, well, I'll, I'll do my best to teach. Um, okay, so the historical setup. The French and Indian War took place from 1754 to 1763 and was fought between the colonists of British America and New France. Uh, and it was a smaller part of the Seven Years' War that was ravaging Europe. Um, during this conflict, both sides were supported by and often dependent upon allegiances with the indigenous peoples of North America and Canada. Conflict developed over land disputes around the Ohio River Basin. Both sides wanted to hold and maintain a monopoly on the fertile lands, the resources, and the gateway to the new frontier. Uh, the fur trade was booming, uh, and business was going well. Uh, and they wanted to control those trade routes. Um, so if they held the river and they controlled the land, they held all the resources and make a nice big chunk of money for everyone. Uh, George Washington also played a role in uh, an early portion of this uh, war, which I thought was interesting. Yes, I thought it was, you know, I did actually see that and I see, saw that uh, he got his ass kicked as well. <laughs> <laughs> but he did, didn't he? Yeah. Um, so it wasn't in, until he was on the away team that he started performing properly. A uh, big frustration uh, for Derby County football team as well, actually, but... Not specifically with George Washington, obviously, but... Okay. Uh, film setup. So the film is an adaptation of James Fenimore Cooper's novel from 1826, but according to Michael Mann, is more heavily influenced by the 1936 film directed by George Sates, uh, which Mann had really fond memories of. Uh, throughout the 80s, Mann had kind of broken his way into the film industry. I don't know if you've seen them, but he made genre favorites like Thief with James Kahn, and he made Manhunter, which is the prequel to Science of the Lambs. Mm. Great movies. Uh, and then after this, he goes on to make his masterpiece in Heat, uh, sort of three years later. And at the same time, Daniel Day-Lewis has kind of begun his, his career of winning all the best actor Oscars so that he has the most. Uh, and he's, uh, he's got one at this point, which is for my left foot, but the others are coming. Can I ask you a question about uh, Daniel Day-Lewis? Yes. Is he as much of a lovey as he seems to be from a distance from an ignorant person? Uh, uh, what do you mean by a lovey? Well, a terrible thesp. You don't know what I mean, do you? Oh, um, you mean an actor? Well, an actor. That's correct. So I think the only thing I remember him in is where he's, some, he's Cecil. And it always annoyed me that he was called Cecil rather than, you know, Cecil. Is that uh, a room with a view, or it is? Am I am I showing how uh, how shallow I am? I think in that movie he gives a really good performance, but playing the character and he's that classic example of an actor who completely disappears into the role. So when he is Cecil, 
you think, oh my God, this is Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, a lovey. But in this movie, he's somebody completely different. In Lincoln or There Will Be Blood, he is a new character every time. Yeah, I must admit, I, I totally agree with that. I'm going to stop being shallow. Uh, and I totally agree with that he is a great actor and I love many films he, he's in too. So I'm now going to stop being shallow and try and be intelligent. But you hated Lincoln. You carry on. I wasn't terribly keen. I just thought it was boring. I didn't, I didn't object to it, you know, and, uh, on moral and artistic ground. I thought it was a bit dull. Okay. So I thought the first thing I should ask, film quality. Uh, David, what did you think of the movie? I thought it was a great movie. I love the movie. Don't know if I love it as much as you do, but I love it quite a lot. And I remember it also from having seen it originally. And I remember, you know, I enjoyed thoroughly watching it again. The story was great. Uh, the romance kind of worked. The countryside and the w- was superb. The there was a bit of pathos at the end uh, when she jumps. Uh, there was excitement in that the the, uh, the villain is an extremely convincing villain. Um, there were goodies. There were baddies. There was a bit of ambiguity going on. It's a good movie. Um, would you say your buckles were swashed? Uh, my swackles were definitely bucked. Buckled, swashed, whatever. Yeah, it all went well. Brilliant. It was all good. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. The things that stood out for me, I thought the soundtrack was brilliant. Mm, yes, that's also good. So it really elevated um, a lot of the movie for me, uh, and I listened to it throughout my uh, researching. Uh, as you pointed out, the vistas are incredible. Interestingly, they have to re- film everything in and around North Carolina, because the forests which used to run from there all the way up to the New York area where it's set um, have been so decimated by construction that they had to go and find one of the last remaining locations. It is interesting, actually, that uh, Jane and I went to Vermont and we nipped across the border to the Algonquins, which I believe is not far away from where this is supposed to have been set. Um, you can correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, we stood, we climbed up a place called State, uh, Snake Mountain, which I think is on the Vermont side. And we looked across Lake Champlain. And it is the most fantastic view I have ever seen in my life. And it gave you a very strong impression of what life must have been like meeting these huge rivers going through wilderness. Um, and I think there's even a little fort there. So it's a shame to hear they couldn't actually record it there. But certainly... Um, I don't know why I'm telling you all that, but it was very, uh, very evocative of how the film was, actually. You are correct. The Adirondacks, which is the mountain range. Uh, the Adirondacks, you're absolutely right. Sorry, I could use the wrong name. Uh, those run up through uh, Vermont, uh, up towards uh, Montreal. So you, you probably are in the right location. Yes, Adirondacks is what it was. It, um, absolutely beautiful, actually. Amazing. I'm very jealous. Um, yes, you should be. <laughs> I, well, I, I appropriately am. Um, back onto the movie. Uh, obviously, as you already said, it has great heroes and villains, an exciting story. Uh, where study is amazing as Magua. Madeline Stowe is given a pretty decent role in the movie as Cora. It has tiny appearances from Pete Pothaway, which means that this movie oh, yes. is already amazing. Um, I'm already. I mean, anything that Pete Possible is in is incredible. Is, is amazing, isn't it? Agreed. I cheered when he appeared. Um, yes. And the other day we watched Romeo and Juliet um, just to see Pete Possible. Um Fantastic. I I used to get him uh, mixed up with Oliver Postwaite or something. The guy, the inventor of the clangers. Ah, uh, easy mistake. And I thought, 
What an amazing career this man has, I thought to myself, actor and clanger creator. But anyway. Um, this movie also features uh, uh, Blink and You Miss It appearances from Jared Harris, if you spotted him. Never heard of him. Um, you must know who he is. Okay, don't worry. No. We'll move on. Oh, I know who he is. He's Mrs. Harris's son, yeah? Yeah, yeah that's him. Um, Great, got him. It, it also features uh, Zach Mooneyhan's dad from School of Rock. No, your son is very skilled. <laughs> exactly. <Yes. laughs> One of the greatest lines in modern cinema. Uh, yes. Um, incredible. I, I cheered when I saw him. Right. Um, <laughs> and as we've already mentioned, the set pieces are incredible. The production design is brilliant. Um, I thought that the attack on the fort and the kind of subsequent ambush, plus the ending as well, were a number of standout moments that looked brilliant. The dedication to setting and the feel of the time uh, really paid off. Did you have any negatives with the film? Um, I mean, not strong negatives. There is one thing that possibly slightly irritated me, and I could be wrong to be so irritated, is that um, as in common with many historical novels and works, um, it seems to me that it's quite difficult not to have a 21st century hero. And I wonder what filmmaker could create such a thing, actually. So there are a few instances where these guys express views that I just don't believe they would have. So, um, and actually I made a note of a couple of them and actually wrote one out. So we've got one here from Munro, who was a pretty hard-bitten chap, it seemed to me. Um, that time shall not be distant. He was saying a Scottish accent, actually. That time shall not be distant when we may assemble around God's throne without distinction of sex, rank, or colour. Unconvincing. Don't think Munro would have said that. Um, and the same a little bit applied to Hawkeye. This is... I mean, he's got to be the goody. That's true. Whereas Munro didn't necessarily have to be the goody. In fact, I think it was... The English were kind of baddies in the, in the movie. Um, but, you know, Hawkeye is kind of a... Um, an exemplar of uh, Western liberalism, you know. Yeah, uh, I agree. Um, on a rewatch, Hawkeye is probably one of the main things that I find s- slightly irritating about the film. It's, right. it's, I don't know. Weirdly, I don't like Daniel Day-Lewis's performance as much as I thought. And despite everything I said about right. him, it, it doesn't quite work for me to have... Daniel Day-Lewis running around in the woods as the hero of this movie. Do you know what it reminded me of? He reminded me of uh, Braveheart, of Mel Gibson in Braveheart. And I had a sort of 10% amount of the irritation, obviously, that uh, Mel, what's his name? Not Mel Brooks. Mel Mel Gibson gave me. (laughs) Um, You know, you kind of think, yeah, right, okay. But, you know, it works in the context of the film. It works very well. You need a hero who's all fantastic and wonderful. And giving him a smidge of 21st century values is probably part of making him attractive. Yeah. And it's a it's a modern retelling. So things are going to change. Um, mm. Maybe not a total negative here either, but I kind of wanted a bit more understanding of the history that's going on in the background. It's not really the focus of the film, so I can excuse it, but we kind of get injected into the story without a full comprehension of what everyone is doing and how all the pieces fit together. And then we mm. drift out of the story again. So when I at the end, I'm not sure I completely comprehend the bigger picture. But 
No. That's that's just for me. Um, yeah. Also, and we will, I'll come back to this in more detail later, but I do have some issues with the film's depictions of the indigenous people. Um, mm-hmm. You said earlier that you quite enjoyed the romance, um, and I was intrigued to see if you thought that it it worked in the movie first and foremost, um, and then if it aided or diminished your overall enjoyment of the story in any way. I think it did. I mean, uh, you, you know me, Wolf. I'm about as romantic as a, as a lump of lard. So, you know, it's not the first thing that attracts me, except, um, obviously, Notting Hill. But with that exception, uh, it worked fine for me. I must admit, I'm... You know, it didn't make me think, oh, gosh, aren't they lovely? How fantastic that they fell in love and they found each other, you know, yada, yada. But then I don't really do that anyway, except for Notting Hill, obviously, as I say. Okay. Um, Yeah, I thought it was interesting because if you'd have asked me to predict, I might have said that you found the romance slightly irritating in the film. Oh, and Chalet Girl, by the way. Sorry. Uh, No, I didn't find it irritating, actually. Good. Okay, Then, then I would say it works. Why, why did you find it irritating? I wouldn't necessarily say it's irritating. I just wonder if it is... So it's it's um, Part of it is created for this version of the movie and it's not in the original text. If I'm right, and I could be wrong, in the book, Hawkeye isn't romantically interested in Korra. And there's kind right. of a sub-story where Magua is infatuated with Korra, which you could argue is in the film. And then Haywood is actually interested in Alice instead. So they change a bunch of stuff up and I... It obviously makes it more epic and modern, I guess. But because they changed it, and then because I'm slightly more interested in the racial and political side of things uh, and the action that's taking place, I always wondered if the romance like melds perfectly with everything else going on in the film or if it detracts. Right. Uh, yes, I must admit it wasn't... Yes, I mean, I refer to my previous answer. I thought it worked perfectly fine in a sort of slot A, tab B kind of way. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Next question for you, David. What is the tone of the movie and how did you interpret the ending of the film? Yes. Well, I thought it was kind of a romantic uh, bun fight. I'm picking the wrong word in bun fight. A... uh, you know, well, as we were saying earlier, there, there was there were swashes being buckled all over the place, and I thought that was its raison d'etre, really. Um, I think it also felt as though it was consciously presenting an American story, which is fine. Um, you know, the English were kind of the enemy, um, probably more than the French, even though they were nominally on the side of the settlers. Uh, what else about Tona? In terms of how the Native Americans were dealt with, which is sounds like your thing most interesting to you, um, I thought it was kind of a pretty straight, standard, noble, savage type depiction. Um, but I may be being a little bit unfair. It was clearly quite positive in a sense that they were not on, you know, they were not the enemy. On the other hand, you see the massacre um from the fort uh the whatever her name is would rather jump off a cliff than um have magua take her away and there was a i think a section where they meet with the horons where uh it's quite a a violent depiction so cut a long story short 
it felt reasonably positive, but it didn't feel, it also felt um, quite standard in a way, quite sort of noble, noble savagery. What did you think? Yes, David, I, I completely agree. I think that the, I, the aspect of the noble savage is used heavily in this. Um, when I was doing my research, um, Michael Mann suggested that the book, uh, in, at least in his eyes, was a gross oversimplification. And he found it to be offensive and ignorant regarding the depiction of indigenous people. Oh, that's quite interesting. So he thought the book was worse than what he did. I mean, I must have, I tried to read the book once many moons ago when I was young uh, and was asleep by the time I got to page 10. So I haven't actually read the whole thing. Uh, and I, I must admit, I haven't read it either. Um, so I think this is partly what plays into the fact that this film is a bit of a swashbuckling adventure, which is how I imagine the 30s film version of this must be. So he's going to take that swashbuckling aspect, which still exists in the book, play that up, and then modernize a lot of the beliefs and approaches to various aspects of the story to kind of uh, improve it. Um, whether it works is another thing. Um, so Cooper was, was researching the French and Indian War, and he read lots of contemporary works about American Indians, but uh, he made a number of erroneous assumptions. And this is according to Hugh uh, McDougall, who's a historian in Cooperstown, New York. Um, perhaps the most egregious assumption that was made is that uh, James Cooper believed the tribe was dying out. Um, so the Mohican people settled in the Hudson River Valley near Albany, New York, and they later relocated to Stockbridge, Massachusetts in the 17th century. But around the time Cooper was writing his book, they moved to central Wisconsin, where they still live, in relatively large numbers. Uh, so, Good Lord. So the Mohican, he wasn't the last Mohican. Yes, yes. This is important. So I was, I was going to come back. That is. Well, I mean, you... Go ahead. The Trades Description Act. The Trades Description Act springs to mind. So Cooper was challenged on it, and then he openly admitted that he knew that they hadn't died out, but he wanted to make a point. I think about the invasion of the settlers in North America, but I also think he was a little bit annoyed that people were challenging him. He seemed a bit defensive, um, right? But yeah, he even hoped. He even admitted that the Mohicans weren't dying out um, and there was no last of the Mohicans. Um, he made that up. Well, that's terrible news. Well, I mean, not terrible. It's obviously, it's great news, but uh, mm, it has an impact. I'm glad I didn't know it before I saw, saw the film because it would have, you know, significantly robbed it of its pathos, wouldn't it? Okay. So just to clarify for the record, did you genuinely yeah. believe that? Yes, I did. He was the last of the Mohicans. And did you believe that all the Mohicans had died out in history? Yes, I did. Okay, this is really important because this book, and I guess every retelling of the book, has played a role in people's understanding of history. So it's this fictional story that is quite um, flippant about how it wants to approach indigenous people and then has recreated a form of history that is now taught to younger generations um yeah and i would argue that you thinking that and i guess i also thought it until i did more research that the mohicans had died out because of this the story that i've always been aware of mm. uh, to then learn that that was false um it's interesting and i think that 
this book has had such a big impact on history, considering that mm. it's a fictional story. So when you say it's had a big impact on history, you mean that people are believing the history in it a bit like, you know, there are some people, I assume, who believe Braveheart. Yes. Um, so Herman Melville was a contemporary at the same time as Cooper. And he had a quote where he said that Cooper is our national novelist. So is Herman Melville, the chap with the fish? Yeah. Sorry, the aquatic mammal. mammal sorry, pardon me. So one of the things that I was researching, and a lot of this is based on the work I was reading from historian and author Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, mm -hmm. um, is that during the settler democracy era, when Cooper is writing, they wanted to create more palatable history for the new generations, essentially remove a lot of the genocide that was being carried out and make it a little more peaceful and, and nice. Um, right. So when Cooper is writing this story where he creates this new history for America, um, Hawkeye inherits a lot of the knowledge and essentially the land from the Mohicans. Uh, Chingachgook kind of passes it on to him. as like an honorary Mohican. There's this, mm. it's this bonding of the settler people with the indigenous people. Then the country is essentially passed on to a new people. Um, right. And I guess the Mohicans represent the wider loss of indigenous life and culture. Um, and it's argued that the impact this book has had has been very negative upon indigenous history within North America. OK, so are you saying that the the intent is to because um, I hadn't imagined this to um, clean whitewash the history as being, look, these. Uh, these indigenous people died out because of what the English and the French did, um, which I suppose is to a degree true anyway, um, and nothing to nothing to do with the Americans. I don't know if I'm saying that. I think what yeah. I'm saying is is that this is a fictional historical book, but at the time it was written and how popular it was and how widely it was disseminated, um, whether deliberately or accidentally, what was created was a new version of history. And then instead of the history from the time being passed on, this new version was what was then passed on to people and became history. Um, right. So new facts were created. Um, and I think what the book does is the book perpetrates a lot of beliefs about the noble savage, the idea that Uncas is a respected and honorable and sophisticated Mohican because of his connections and links with the white settlers, while Magua right. and the Hurons are these savage beasts with no honor who will mercilessly kill women and children um, and eat their hearts. Um, and there's no hope for them and they need to be removed. So I think what you get is that those ideas and are kind of perpetrated and, and developed and built into the work that's being produced. So some people have considered that Cooper is sympathetic towards the American Indians, at least for his time, which I think is potentially fair, but that for that time period, Cooper and other contemporaries, including famously Mark Twain, believed that the only good Indian was a dead one. Is that right? Mark Twain as well? 
Yeah, I think Mark Twain was quite uh, open about that. That's why he came up as like a big example. So this is not to necessarily blame these two or three individuals, but to suggest that that was what people felt in that country at that time. Right. So the book then promotes those ideas. It also pushes uh, westward expansion uh, and essentially puts forward the idea that the native people should assimilate or disappear. And then what we're presented with is this story where Hawkeye and these two Mohicans, who are, air quotes, good Indians, um, join the the white uh, settlers and on the British side, and they help defeat the you know the evil French army and all of the evil Indians, mm-hmm. and then uh, they help create this new country which has blossomed and bloomed into the United States that we know. Right. Okay. That's interest- interesting. I didn't really get that, but then it's probably the shallowness of my the way I watched it. Um, as far as the way I read it was that here is a new America being formed slightly, rather disingenuously, making the assumption that colonist plus Indian uh, were more in tune than they were with these outsiders, the the English in particular, but also the French. So I probably misinterpreted that, obviously, but that was just the impression it gave, gave me. I actually think that you've hit the nail on the head and you've said it better than I did. I think that your reading of the movie is exactly what we're meant to think. And I think your reading of the movie is what audiences are meant to take from it. Right. And I think that whether it's deliberate or not, the book and all the subsequent remakes of the films have created this history which doesn't feature the, uh, the militias deployed by the British to burn entire villages to the ground, scalp indigenous men, women and children, and send them back to the British... There's none of the complete obliteration of thousands and thousands of people. Yes, and what you've got instead is that, like you say, this connection between the peoples of the land. So you argue, obviously, the the British are forced out, and the you know the War of Independence comes along, and the French are got rid of, and then what you have is this new bond between these two new groups of people that that can share this land together, but the sharing can't exist. And in order for that to happen, the indigenous people have to die out or assimilate mm-hmm. themselves completely. And I just think it's like a like a, a nice rose tinted view of of history. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds very good. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I agree. So I think yeah, what I'm saying is your interpretation is correct, but to indigenous people, that view is is the wrong view to have of history. Their history has yeah. been erased, and I'm conscious of it. Um... You know, that's what the film was saying to me. I I don't think I have to believe it. Okay, because this is one of the problems I was having. So you you still enjoyed the movie, even though you knew kind of what it was doing to you? Because I did. Yeah, yeah. And, And that brings us out, I guess, into a fundamental discussion about the purpose and rights of uh, historical novelists and historical filmmaking, doesn't it? Again, so to quote a much less important and more trivial uh, example there's all the debate about the crown at the moment uh, of the crown depicting living people um in in a fictional way and you know how acceptable is that in my view it's in that case it's not very acceptable because the people are still alive but normally i would have to accept that any film any book that's clearly that you know it is it's fiction 
unless you say it's a documentary, th- most things are fair game, you know. As a as somebody who's interested in history, it seems to me very often people take liberties they just don't need to make. But we have to interpret it, don't we? Yes. And I think that this is um this is a pretty good film for for doing that. I think where I'm maybe most torn is that when we go into the historical accuracy, the film is meticulous in its recreation of setting and place, um, costume design, everything. So as we've talked about before, the feeling of the place is, is almost perfect. Like I know exactly what it's like to be there and I can see it visually. So then I'm slightly frustrated if, as you've said, pointed out before, that you didn't know that the Mohicans were still alive. You always assumed they died out. Since Michael Mann says that he had all these problems with the original text, I still would argue that despite his best efforts, what he's done is mm. just created a slightly more modern version of the text, but one that still perpetuates a lot of the issues and problems with the original one. And he's creating, adding a, just a new layer of paint over the, over the top of the previous one. Right. So he's compounding the felony. I think he's correcting some problems, but I think, like you say, he's compounding some of the issues. And one of those is that it's continuing to, to force this myth that the Mohicans died off. Should we move on to historical accuracy since we Yeah. Since you mentioned it. Um okay, so well, was there anything you wanted to add about historical accuracy before I dive into it? No. Okay. Um so obviously, as I've said before, man's approach um was to create an incredibly realistic depiction of the time period and a more balanced um, and informed portrayal of the indigenous characters. At least that's his intention. Um, There was a lot of research carried out. Numerous anthropological and historical experts were on set. They created intricate and unique costumes and props from all the individual tribes. Uh, The sets are all built to be as accurate as possible. Um, Real construction made from the right materials per the time period. Uh, they really went out into the middle of the woods and constructed Fort William Henry, like, fully as a place that you could be. And then, obviously, well, maybe you don't already know this, but Daniel Day-Lewis spent months training um, from experts how he could live in the wilderness. So he... Dear, dear, da- dear, dear Daniel. He would, of course. Yep. He carved canoes out of wood. He learned how to load <laughs> a musket while running. So he's such a burke, isn't he? The, do you remember that? Do you heard about the old story between I don't know? I think it might have been John Gielgud and Dustin Hoffman. I, it, you know I, think it's, I think it's Lawrence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman. Is it Lawrence Olivier? Did Larry and Dustin Hoffman? It, it's acting, my dear. Yes. Anyway, carry on. Well, yeah, it, it's that exactly. So at the end of the movie, when he's running up the mountain pass and he's loading the musket while he's running, he's perfected that over weeks and weeks. He learned how to wield various weapons. He learned how to hunt, how to build fires using only 18th century equipment. And he submerged himself into this life of living in the woods. Um, Sounds quite fun. Yeah. So what you get is like that accuracy comes through in the movie. Um, Hmm. UCLA professor Joyce Appleby, uh, who is a published author on the 17th, 18th century British and American history, has lauded the attention to detail uh, that the film possesses, the costumes, sets, the use of languages. Um, Numerous experts were brought in, ranging from Delaware language instructors to 18th century frontier consultants. So they really went, they went all out on this. Um, And then in terms of the actual events, the siege of Fort William Henry is fairly accurate. 
The surrounding historical events are pretty good, sort of outside of our hero's journey, which is the fabricated part. Uh, And then on the whole, Monroe and Montcalm are fairly accurate. There is one exception, which I will mention in the inaccuracies. Obviously, the main one is that most of the characters are fictional. Hawkeye is made up. Chingunch Cook is made up. Uncas was real, but he was never in this area. Uh, He wasn't in upstate New York. Uh, He was the chief of the Mohegans in Connecticut. And he continued, he survived. He lived out his life and, you know, his people continued to live on, Um, Mm. which is probably the biggest uh, inaccuracy of the whole movie. Then when it comes to the historical events, I think this is an interesting one. The ambush after the surrender of Fort William Henry goes a bit differently. Um, So the indigenous forces that had traveled to support the French had come from far and wide and they wanted a payoff for everything that they'd gone through. Um, so they weren't exactly pleased when the British had just let free. So they were feeling maybe a bit put out and they wanted to get something back. So they do start following the train to rob it, but they're looking for goods, clothing. They take a few captives, but they mostly attack the kind of wounded and dying. Now, in the movie, I get the suggestion that Montcalm is a little bit... Uh, he's either suggesting to Magua that he should do something or he's at least expressing frustrations which allow this kind of miscommunication, and thus the attack happens. Also, Montcalm doesn't seem to do anything. Uh, In reality, when he found out it was happening, he couldn't believe it. He was so shocked and aggrieved, he organised the French to rush in and protect the train, and he personally escorts them all the way back to the British forces. And it's such a stain upon his honour, and it's reported in all the newspapers, um, that he allowed the surrendered forces to be slaughtered. The papers obviously exaggerated, um, I don't know if he ever recovered, and uh, it was this thing that haunted him the rest of his life. Whereas in the movie, obviously, we don't get that historical mm. context. So as soon as the French have taken over, we never hear from them again. And Montcalm presumably goes and then gets his ass kicked outside Quebec by Wolf. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was my doing. So I think the film is exaggerating the the Huron betrayal and the attack on the right. innocent British. Um, and then is also ignoring the the French response, which I understand kind of why they do it. It works for the movie, but I think that is that was something I wanted to point out. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's not a great accusation to have to uh, to have to live with it when it's not true. Was there anything that you wanted to add about uh, inaccuracy or history? I didn't. I don't. I know, don't know very much about the wars other than in very broad outline. And maybe unconsciously, the, the kind of attention to detail that you're talking about is part of what makes it a, such a good movie, though, because it is utterly convincing. Yeah, and that's just why it comes around to my, my main point, really. It's so convincing in its telling of history that I personally think that there should be more attention paid to telling more truths because it's very yeah. believable. So when you perpetrate a, a myth... In a, in a film like this with such accuracy, um, it's easy for the audience to take away the wrong impression of history. Yeah. But as a piece of entertainment, it's great. Yeah. And I, I kind of completely understand why they make all the decisions that they're doing. Adding the romance is great for the story. It amps up the drama. It, that's brilliant. And yeah, ultimately, it's, it's escapism. And I understand why it did really well and why I like it and why you like it. And I... I guess it's 30 years old, so I can't even completely blame some of the issues it it makes around depicting the indigenous people. And I still appreciate that it's trying to do a better job. 
I just still think we can critique it for some things. Okay, so shall we score the movie then? I think my film score would be an eight, but I also think I might be being a little bit harsh. I went for seven. I'm probably being even harsher. Why did I go for seven? Mm, that's interesting. What you know? What what would it do better? No, I think that's understandable. I don't know. Seven or eight? Yeah, I I went for an eight. Um, and accuracy wise, uh, I was thinking of a five. My reasoning was I would give it if I divide the ten into setting, place, feel, accuracy of all the details, and then accuracy of the story itself. And all of the context, the details, everything, the recreation, brilliant. That gets five points. And then the entire story itself is almost all fiction. Right. Okay. So, yes, I think I went for a seven, but um, I take your point. Absolutely. I kind of went for seven because I thought the, as far as I could tell, the setting was incredibly accurate. And um, so I kind of marked it for that rather than interesting the story being completely fictitious. Yeah. And there were things like, as I understood it, what I'd read actually about the historical accuracy was something about, you know, that the attack upon the um, the retreating British wasn't as vicious as it was portrayed in the film. So I sort of picked up there were some inaccuracies around that. Um, but yeah, accuracy wise, we're agreeing the points we've done, but that's an arbitrary thing. We essentially both agree the story is made up, but the place is recreated perfectly. Yes, we do. Would you recommend it? I certainly would. Yeah. To anybody. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, so great movie, and yeah, definitely one of those I put on the list. Uh, and for anyone out there listening, it's on Netflix, at least in the UK at the moment, so that's free, and you can watch it, and you'd have a great ride. Very good. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much, Wolf. Um, the good start, good start to our new season. Thank you, David. It's uh, really good to be back, and um, I'll be. We'll record the next episode in in just a couple of minutes. Great, and I think the next episode should you be interested, everyone is good vibrations. Um, as always, we look forward to hearing uh, your comments on what we've done um, on the Facebook page. And um, yeah, we welcome being able to have these conversations with you again and uh, look forward to uh, where this goes in the future. Yeah, brilliant. All right, see you on Facebook, everybody. Bye-bye. Are you not entertained? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.